Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacket Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. listening to the Revenge of the Birds podcast, part of the SB Nation podcast network, hosted by Blake Murphy 7, all about your Arizona Cardinals. Hello, Arizona Cardinals fans. Welcome in. This is the Revenge of the Birds podcast, your complete cards coverage. My name is Blake Murphy. You can find me and my work on Twitter at BlakeMurphy7. And we're here with a solo pod today. If you haven't heard the news as of the last podcast, uh, my longtime co-host, as you may know, the venerable Johnny Venerable, has moved on to uh, hopefully bigger and brighter things as far as his coverage. But the ROTV pod will continue, and there's a lot to cover on today's show. I'm going to get into a little bit of of some journalism coverage, maybe a little bit of some opinion pieces, looking at things from a fan perspective, and talk about the 53-man roster, several surprises in store for the Cardinals, nothing that maybe was too shocking, but we will start with the headliner, the most shocking news to come out of the past few days, which is the retirement of Cardinals starting cornerback Malcolm Butler, guy who comes over from the temp. Tennessee Titans, previously known as a New England Patriot, had that infamous interception in that Super Bowl that essentially kept Russell Wilson and the Seahawks from that second in a row Super Bowl. And this, I got to say, a lot of Cardinals fans, a lot of media people in general felt very blindsided by this news. Butler seemingly had no indication that he was considering retirement. News drops on NFL Network that he was considering. And the news then, uh, recording this on a Tuesday, is official as of this afternoon. And just the feeling overall was from the news yesterday, it was not necessarily necessarily a Jared Valdir getaway for a day or just the way it was covered. It did seem like there was an era of finality to it, not to mention the fact that a lot of people looked immediately at the Cardinals roster and had this, oh no, what is going on? And that is what we're going to get into today. Uh, Before we start, let's talk a little bit about what we've seen from Camp and Butler and just some of the approach that I think the Arizona Cardinals have had for this season. Because I think it's a big deal when you're talking about usually losing a veteran one-year cornerback who signed for about $3.5 million. It's usually not something that would be huge. This isn't like, you know, J.J. Watt retiring. This isn't like DeAndre Hopkins when he had tweeted out earlier this year that he was, you know, looking at potentially having to leave football because he hated the vaccination rules. And then it's like, oh, no, by the way, guys, uh, I'm going to be around for a long time. Don't worry about me. 
This is something that we've seen that's been a bit different. This is on the peak of a season. Player who is expected to be a large part of the Cardinals up and retires. Now, there's been obviously speculation, and I think it's not worth speculating about. Obviously, when a player gets up and retires suddenly, uh, there's times where there can be something unknown medically that can happen. The best example I can think of the past few years being Trent Williams missing the team uh, with the Washington football team. And finding out that there was apparently a missed cancer diagnosis, he eventually ends up recovering from that, gets traded to the San Francisco 49ers. That's not to say that his health is out of place, but it just goes to show that when a player does choose to retire unexpectedly, either there's some case of where they just don't have it anymore. I think at least a lot of the Cardinals signing a few years ago. Uh, bringing, um, it wasn't Michael Crabtree necessarily, I think it might have been at least, they were bringing back an old receiver back to the Cardinals, expected to be able to make an impact, and they went on to not play in a single game for the Cardinals. Uh, that's one of the areas, at least, of where you have a guy that's signed, expected to be a contributor, and immediately drops off. That's something that's just kind of for the norm. Unfortunately, it is the NFL. It does stand for not for long. But this is something different. We ended up seeing, at least for people charting, at least on social media, the Cardinals were removed from Malcolm Butler's profile picture and more. Um, You saw that he left up a few other pictures from his time with the Titans and the Patriots. We also saw how Malcolm Butler played through all of camp. That's probably the biggest surprise here is player to go through all of camp and suddenly be removed from that entire equation. Uh, There's something about it that just doesn't seem to jive right. And uh, that's something I think at least that there must be some sort of cause or a reason versus just a changing of feelings. Obviously, hope the best for Malcolm Butler. Hope the best for his family. But I'm going to talk about two areas that I think it might be as far as just maybe reading a little bit between the tea leaves, maybe looking a little bit at the NFL in its entirety this season, and talk a bit about what in the world might have been the cause of this for Malcolm Butler. All right, so the first things first. The NFL this season has had a couple of retirements across the league that maybe would be a bit out of the ordinary. We were talking about the New York Giants, at least, especially. Had about two to three players or so who just simply retired versus being able to be made to run laps around the field. The retirement of those players is partially due to the fact that in the midst of this COVID environment, in the midst of all of the extra sacrifices players are making, it just feels like there is a little bit more of a step that some guys are having to weigh the pros and cons. Now, the NFL, every single year you talk about this, there's pros and there's cons to a player getting paid millions of dollars who then has to put their body through an almost literal hell and then come out on the other side essentially as a champion ready to perform against the other elite specimens of the rest of the National Football League. Uh, you could even say of United States, in most cases, you could even say that the world has to offer. And in that regard... If it's not something that's worth it for a player or if there's a issue that pops up, at least for that, for those who are already made their money, who've already made their millions, sometimes the retirement for them is like, hey, man, I, I know that I could be making more money, but it's just not worth it. That may be one of the cases with Malcolm Butler in addition to that, this pandemic. And I think one of the reasons why for some players for their retirement is that their heart isn't in it anymore. Larry Fitzgerald went on and talked on the radio to Jim, I believe it was Jim Gray's radio show. Um, 
uh, talking about he does not see himself really having that same desire for football. He doesn't see himself having the same passion he once did. I know we've talked about this a few years ago with Steve Wilkes, Larry Fitzgerald with a new coach, with everything else happening. It seemed like he was a long shot to come back to the Cardinals. It seemed like a great time to hang it up. Instead, we end up seeing Fitzgerald almost uh, even quicker than he perhaps ever did reemerge uh, re as a Cardinals wide receiver for that franchise under Steve Wilkes. And it almost seemed like it was an aspect of there was maybe an addiction, something compelling. It was something that got Fitz out there to play every single week, not just for the roar of the crowd, but for the love of the game. And to be able to see that lose from Byron, uh, from I should say, from Malcolm Butler. Perhaps that's one part of it. Perhaps it was even more than that. Perhaps it was the emergence of Byron Murphy as the top cornerback on the team. And perhaps it was even more the emergence of Marco Wilson, a fourth-round pick, who has been very impressive with the Cardinals can play on the inside and outside. And also Kimes' devotion, at least seemingly, to Robert Alford, was listed as the starter above Malcolm Butler in camp, listed throughout. And as we've seen, it seems very, I guess you could say, connected to me, that these two things might be a bit more related than we thought. The fact that Marco Wilson, the day after you hear all of these retirement rumors about Malcolm Butler hanging it up, is essentially leaked by uh, Arizona Sports' John Gambadora, who many know probably has a direct line within to the organization. He ends up going and letting know that Wilson's going to have a starting spot on this team. And one thing that we do know about the NFL and its players is that pride is a big deal to guys. Pride ends up being a lot of what runs teams, what runs relationships. Uh, think back to the days of Anquan Bolden, essentially refusing to play for the Cardinals after he felt disrespected, looking at the fact that Tyron Matthew and Patrick Peterson alike have felt disrespected by the Cardinals. Perhaps there was something similar that Malcolm Butler felt by not being named a starter for the Cardinals. Some appointed to his pro football focus grades in the preseason. I think, honestly, the experience and the fact that when you're talking about preseason, Athletes will always show out because when it comes to playing football, the mental aspect of the game is not there. Guys aren't game planning. Coaches are essentially running, you know, plays that are never going to see the light of day often in the regular season just because teams will be familiar with what to do. And as a result of that, perhaps that was part of where Malcolm Butler does not understand why the Cardinals would list a guy like a Marco Wilson as a starter over him, knowing the fact that he's got the experience, he's got the credence, he's still been playing, at least from what people have been able to tell, solid football. Perhaps it was ultimately a pride thing. Now, some have speculated that it could be due to the COVID requirements of the Cardinals. Players who were not vaccinated would have a much different time than those who were. As we can see, at least first from the Cardinals, Andy Isabella has been out for quite maybe the entire offseason. Uh, still makes a roster, as we'll get to in a second, but ends up essentially maybe coming through as the one lone vaccinated player, at least that or I should say, excuse me, unvaccinated player that ended up going through the entire process because it doesn't seem likely with Butler not being out with the way that things had worked throughout the rest of Cardinals camp. Well, some could say one thing or the other, you're never truly sure. And part of that, I think, is that there is, you know, a right to privacy that we'll see in the NFL. Teams are not letting players, you know, be charted whether or not it is externally for the public to know about. Maybe that was one of the requirements that led to the retirement is that Butler didn't want to go through the season like that. But 
I think that there could be a deeper issue as well. And some of it has to tie into the fact that there's a lot of Cardinals fans who just feel nervous about the season. They feel nervous because of how national guys have been adding and talking about how all of the additions that they've made have just been older players who are veterans, but maybe a little bit past their prime. And Butler was one of those players. There also is kind of this feeling of do or die for Cliff Kingsbury. And many national writers are ascribing that to Steve Keim. I don't know if that's the case or not. Part of me at least feels like ultimately this is still Michael Bidwell's team. Steve Keim is still ultimately either working with him or working under him to such a degree that if someone is going to be able to criticize Cliff Kingsbury, the correct answer at least is why is Cliff Kingsbury a head coach at the NFL level? And I think that one of the reasons why is a huge positive for the Arizona Cardinals. One of them, at least, is a negative. When he was hired, Kingsbury, the decision was essentially, Ted, hey, he's hired to be a glorified offensive coordinator. Why are the Cardinals doing this? They fired, didn't give Steve Wilkes any time. I think that the Cardinals were a little bit smart because they went and hired Cliff Kingsbury a year before he was certainly going to be brought on, not only as potentially the USC offensive coordinator, but as an assistant to Sean McVay or as an assistant to the New England Patriots and Josh McDaniels. Josh McDaniels, at that time, people forget, was likely going to take a job with uh, the Indianapolis Colts the year before. Cliff Kingsbury could have been potentially one of the next in line for Bill Belichick and the New England Patriots offense, which would have gotten him snapped up perhaps immediately. Now it seems more likely McDaniels is sticking around, has not really wanted to jump to another job without getting some level of roster control. And it's that level of roster control is part of the reason why the Arizona Cardinals would not consider him. Because Steve Kime wants to be able to make decisions, be able to have that level of control over the roster, and have a coach that's unable to coach up the talent that he gives them. And in that regard, the Cardinals struck perhaps a year early. Instead of having to pay Cliff, you know, some maybe, you know, $10 million a year or so, like he might have gotten coming off of a hot streak of a rock-solid Patriots offense, they instead got to take a discount by hiring a coach who'd previously been let go from his alma mater, essentially buying low, and he has turned the Cardinals around to some degree from being an absolute train wreck under Steve Wilkes to a competent team in the NFL. Not one of the ones that maybe people are picking to win the NFC West outright, but a competent team. So the fact that Steve Keim, as far as Cliff Kingsbury could go, that may be some of the best that they could do really brings up the question, if the Cardinals and Malcolm Butler have issues similar to Tyron Matthew, similar to Patrick Peterson, and those are not tied to Cliff Kingsbury but to Steve Keim, then I think the Cardinals maybe have uh, maybe in a little bit of trouble there. And that's partially because we've seen Keim as a guy who has leaked stuff to the media, who has essentially kind of overridden Cliff in several regards, where Kingsbury goes out to the media gives a presentation, and then in perhaps the very next interview says something completely different. It's not necessarily something that it seems like that he's trying to hide or conceal. He'll just simply avoid the topic. When it comes to making declarative statements, though, if that's been changed, some people, including myself, speculate that Steve Keim is the one who's essentially making those changes. And that ties even into this preseason. We're seeing at least signs of how the Cardinals have you know, not played Kyler Murray when it was expected that he would. We've seen how Malcolm Butler was probably left behind Robert Alford as far as out of a starting role for the team to the likes of a Byron Murphy and Marco Wilson. And now you're looking at, you know, Patrick Peterson going on and talking about the Cardinals having a plan of more than one year. It's not something that he says he sees in that front office. 
And that's going to be the, that'll be the topic I think we can shift to now is, sorry, taking a drink of water there, talking a bit about the Cardinals and these one-year deals. I think at least when a lot of people looked at the Arizona Cardinals and saw these kind time signs, it was within a context of seeing where the Arizona Cardinals were coming out of a terrible 5-11 and 11 season under Ken Wisenhunt. This is a season, mind you, that had the Arizona Cardinals and their fans trying to keep Ray Horton as their defensive coordinator. The defense people forget that year was perhaps top 12 in the NFL. They were excellent. They were games that you saw with the Cardinals, such as the game against the New York Jets, where the Cardinals' offense was so pitiful that they couldn't muster any points, but their defense was so great that they were able to stop the opposing offenses from scoring two. That was a season in which Matt Ryan threw five interceptions to that Cardinals defense, and the Cardinals offense still lost the game for them. So taking that into account, when Steve Kime comes in and the Cardinals hire Bruce Arians, they rework some of the offense, you can see how some of those one-year deals might have been super effective. Arizona's able to fill a gap that they have in their linebacker position by bringing Carlos Dansby to a team that already has Calais Campbell, Darnell Dockett up front. They had Patrick Peterson on the back end, a team that drafted Tyron Matthew in the third round getting a steal, as well as Rashad Johnson being kind of the stalwart leader in the middle of the defense, that no-fly zone that was much esteemed and was almost like a band of brothers. Adding some one-year deal players to that who could fill a role of a roster that already had a lot of talent was just something that took the Cardinals to the next level. And they were a 10-win team for every year under Bruce Arians' tenure until their last one. Their last year, the Cardinals, interestingly enough, brought back some of those players on those one-year deals, such as Fitzgerald. Palmer's contracts, obviously, were pushed back. You could talk about the team bringing Carlos Dansby back in to be sort of this pseudo-mentor to Hassan Reddick, being this... Uh, sort of guide who will take over that inside linebacker spot, and then Reddick would be ready to take it over the following year. We see the bottom fall out of that 2017 team after Carson Palmer goes down, but the defense, with Tyron Matthew and Buda Baker on the same field, made enough plays, and Drew Stanton performed well enough that they were able to get to a manageable 8-8 eight and eight record. They shut out the Giants to end the year and had a, I believe it was either a missed kick or a made kick at the very end of the game, that allowed the Arizona Cardinals to essentially not finish with a losing record under Bruce Arians. He retires the very next day after that game is, and the Cardinals are left with zero quarterbacks under contract. Now, mind you, this all ties into the fact that that 2017 season, everyone knew that Carson Palmer was probably near the end, except for seemingly the Arizona Cardinals. Arians had talked about how they were going to ride off into the sunset together. You also were looking at the fact that the Cardinals decided essentially to remain at pick number 13, not take any Mitchell Trubisky, Jody Fall there, but then to look at the likes of Deshaun Watson and Patrick and Patrick Mahomes. And the fact that the Cardinals went to Mahomes workouts, talked to it a lot, had the Saints picking in front of them, were leapfrogged twice, and the Cardinals had essentially no quarterback options since Deshaun Kaiser was, as we'd correctly surmised on this podcast, a ruse. It left them high and dry with zero quarterbacks under the contract for next year. Cardinals choose a one-year solution between Sam Bradford and Mike Glennon and try to bring in a long-term option. It doesn't work out. Cardinals tried to, you know, I believe it was in that 2000 and 
2018 season, looked at bringing on a cornerback in Ben Ben Wickery to be able to help the team out some while they were developing you know, some of the other players and shifting to a new defensive mold. You can talk about bringing in a guy on a one-year deal to be their starting right tackle. You can then look at how the Cardinals over time took a one-year deal for Jermaine Gresham, a one-year deal for the likes of Marcus Cooper, and how those guys were able to make major paydays, whether with the Cardinals or with another team off of some of those deals. And what I think you see over time, at least, is this pattern of the Cardinals when they find these guys who hit on a one-year deal. It's almost like a guy at the blackjack table who keeps basically hitting 21 with the cards he's dealt. When you kind of end up looking at the NFL through a lens of not necessarily skill or talent, but having a little bit of luck thrown in, it makes things make a lot more sense. If you keep going down at the poker table, keep winning hands again and again, you start saying, all right, I got a hot hand, hit me. And suddenly when you realize that that luck is going to run out, it can be a lot harder to adjust. Being able to look at risk assessment and uncertainty is part of what Arizona has tried to do with having these one-year deals so that you can have a guy who's behind be able to step up. Well, with Arizona, what we saw from the 2018 to the 2021 season is that Steve Kimes' one-year deals, all of these plans he'll do of bring in a veteran, draft a rookie, develop the rookie behind the veteran, they all seem to end up working on the bad luck spectrum. You're talking about at least, you know, the Cardinals lose their starting right tackle for a year, or he's just terrible, at least in 2018. Talk about in 2019, Patrick Peterson's suspension and, and the likes of how Robert Alford, who was signed to be that guy to go alongside of him, gets hurt, goes out for the season. The Cardinals were trying to find a long-term partner for Peterson years and years after they had essentially neglected the position. They were the only team uh, from what our sources had said that offered him a multi-year deal. And as a result, he goes on IR. Patrick Peterson is suspended for six games. And the Cardinals have the 32nd ranked defense in the NFL. Fast forward to 2020, they try to sign Tremaine Brock. You end up looking at um, developing a little bit more for Byron Murphy out of the slot. But Tremaine Brock ends up getting cut about halfway through the season, and suddenly you're trying to figure out whether it's Chris Jones. You're trying to figure out who it is is going to be that guy who's going to help the Arizona Cardinals. I believe this is in the 2019 season. Brock ends up getting cut. He just ends up looking miserable. This is part of what we see with Steve Keim is he'll bring in a guy, expect them to be able to perform, and if they have a really bad game, it'll cut them, usually immediately following. Essentially, this is the whole route. This is the problem. And I think that works on a stage when you look at it and say, hey, there's a bit of luck involved. That was poor luck. You just kind of move on to the next guy. When you have some of the moves that people question if they should have been signed in the first place, that's sometimes, I think, where that line can get blurred. That's some of what pops up, I think, occasion with Steve Keim, with some of the players. And then there's other times that you look at it and say, the move that Kime made was probably savvy. Instead of having to have a third-round pick in Josh Jones start on the right tackle, you instead got to see them sign Kelvin Beecham to a one-year deal, and now he's been extended to a multi-year contract with two years on the books, but one specifically for this year where he can start. And i got to say, through preseason, it's not that Beecham has been bad, but he has shown a few more signs of struggles than he did last year. And to that degree, maybe there's a little bit of that blackjack table that I think that Steve Kime can be on where he relies a little too much on some of those one-year players. When really what the Cardinals have struggled with overall from the 2013, 2014, 2016, they have zero players from those draft years remaining on their rosters. If you look at how the only player who signed a multi-year deal with Arizona from the 2015 season 
was DJ Humphreys, uh, who's still on the team. Tyron Matthew was the only other one who signed a multi-year deal. David Johnson signed a multi-year deal. But as far as for these players who are still on the team, these cornerstone pieces, you're essentially left with DJ Humphreys at this point. He is, at this point, the longest tenure player on the team. And in that regard, the Arizona Cardinals really are just spending so much time focusing on trying to fill positions due to draft misses. They never really end up developing players or having a multi-year plan. Like, you can see how they want to have a multi-year plan. You can see how Joshua Miles seems to be able to be developing into much more of this kind of starting guard, maybe a starting outside tackle. You can see how they wanted to develop Corey Cunningham. Eventually, something happens, it breaks, it doesn't work out, and they give up and trade it away. I don't know if they're giving up on these players too soon, but I think, in my suspicion at least, is much more about how the Cardinals are trying to field a winning team. This will be the transition to the next topic with how do the Arizona Cardinals accomplish the fact of becoming a winning franchise when they're one of the losingest? Well, the way that they did that previously, if you look at the 2008 Super Bowl team and the team that was thereafter for the next season or two, was that they drafted well. They had players that came in and Larry Fitzgerald and Carlos Dansby and Darnell Dockett, a great draft class in 2004. They were able to bring in some solid offensive linemen. It wasn't really the strength, but then they brought in veterans such as Edger and James and Kurt Warner, and that was paired with their solid draft picks of Larry Fitzgerald, of course, and Anquan Bolden. Add in a late-round steal and Steve Breston out of the slot, and suddenly then when you're talking about the Arizona Cardinals, you can see this build of veteran quarterback talent and surrounded by young defensive talent and being able to have this passing attack that was hard to defend due to the fact that a veteran quarterback with those weapons could pick you apart. Fast forward to the Cardinals under Steve Kime a few years later, Kime lasting from 2006 being brought on board to now the general manager in 2014-2015, and you have a very similar scenario. A veteran quarterback in Carson Palmer being able to throw to these weapons such as John Brown, having Michael Floyd, even David Johnson being this figure out of the backfield that defenses could not figure out how to match up against. And on the other side, you've got young defensive players, and Patrick Peterson is still in his prime. Tyron Matthew is young. You can talk at least about Calais Campbell, but Marcus Golden was a young find for them. And even Tony Jefferson being kind of that undrafted or late steal. And now we then fast forward to the current Arizona Cardinals, and we've seen where Steve Kime has stumbled. It's easier when you have some of that benchmark of making good high draft picks to then fill in with a bit of veteran talent. But there's one thing that they've really struggled to do, and that's be able to do it with a young quarterback and with young players surrounding them. And that's where I think that the Cardinals ultimately went back to this offseason a little bit of the old Kime method, bringing guys on one-year deals, have some of that veteran talent, and when the team was able to move on from Malcolm Butler potentially to Byron Murphy and Marco Wilson, perhaps some of that embracing it was just a tad too soon. I think back to Brandon Williams being announced as the starter, and then, well, I'll take this at least and say, he was a running back in college, spent one year at corner. I don't think that's going to be the same case for Marco Wilson. But if Wilson ends up being a guy who has great recovery speed, is able to show that off as you know, playing more simplified routes, suddenly has to go up against an A.J. Brown or a Julio Jones who are able to get separation, get open, and has the physical skills. Then suddenly you're looking at Steve Kime going, hey, like, wouldn't it be better to have a rotation of players to be able to plug in more than just a Robert Alford who's been gone from football for two years? In that regard, I think that the Cardinals, they really want to have young stars be able to blossom and play. They want to have these hits on draft picks. 
And the reason why it's quite simple, because Steve Kime, being a man at least who gets the general manager spot, he's going to prefer to be able to look at his own track record of draft picks and hits or even finding these one-year deal, one-year steals and make that kind of his MO. That is one of the areas I think is kind of a struggle for the Cardinals right now. And that's because Steve Kime is not operating with his quarterback. He's operating essentially with what most people know as Cliff Kingsbury's quarterback. He's operating under the trades that he's made from Chandler Jones and DeAndre Hopkins versus operating under, you know, the likes of Cliff Kingsbury wanting to take on an Andy Isabella. And then the coaching staff seemingly taking on a player that just was a bit out there, did not seem to really fit for the most part. And I think that when it comes to it all said and done, the Cardinals under Kime are really trying to be able to find this new identity of being able to find, draft, and develop young players, surround your young quarterback with enough talent to be able to get to that next stage. And I think that this year, Kime at least understood he's going to have to be able to go back to his old methods and rely on some of those vets. But when you talk about Wilson being a hit, suddenly I think that went out the window and now you're talking about him being able to start. And a lot of Cardinals fans are looking at these first three games, especially game number one against the Tennessee Titans, and wondering if Marco Wilson has to start, if Robert Alford doesn't stay healthy, what will the Cardinals look like this season? All right, let's go ahead and we'll change our topic now. We're going to talk a little bit about the roster, the final 53 that dropped today. Let's go ahead and mention at least the fact that there's very many obvious players who will be on the team. We're not going to talk about most of them. The DJ Humphreys, the Rodney Hudsons, the Chandler Jones, the Andre Hopkins, they're essentially been locks for the roster. Even Colt McCoy, who was signed this year to be the backup, is a guy who is a lock on the roster. What I think you get curious about when it comes to the 53, I was talking about who were some of the guys who were on the bubble who either didn't make it expectedly or did. And the first one that seems to pop up, of course, is Chris Banjo. The safety, who spent some time last year, at least with the Cardinals, a good special teams player, showed some instincts and a knack in coverage, kind of in that strong safety in the box mold. Some of the role that we might see Isaiah Simmons play when he's not playing inside linebacker this year gets released. It was a bit of a surprise. Most people had him as a lock on the roster for the special teams ability and the fact that he's been an experienced backup. Instead, you end up seeing the Cardinals move to a safety room of Charles Washington along with... Um, obviously, Buda Baker, the star that he is, with Jalen Thompson on the other side coming back healthy, and Deontay Thompson. The fact that the Cardinals kept four safeties in years where they would sometimes keep five is a bit noticeable, but it's not nearly as noticeable as that third quarterback, Chris Trevlin. Now, I don't want to say it's a one-for-one, one, but if you told me that the Cardinals had to choose between keeping Chris Banjo or Chris Streveler, I would think that that may be the case here, because... If you had to say, would you rather keep a big, strong quarterback with rushing ability, who showed a decent arm for passing the ball, can be used, as we saw, similar in that Taysom Hill role. And if Kyler Murray, God forbid, should go down, you could use that mobility of Streveler alongside the arm and some of the understanding of Colt McCoy in this air raid scheme and kind of get maybe a whole Kyler Murray out of those two quarterbacks. The question, of course, is did they need to keep him on the roster versus the practice squad? Well, I think Streveler showed enough to teams who maybe aren't in the most competent backup situation to take him on as to say, hey, like this guy that we've got is a fourth round rookie. Chris Streveler is a guy who's played football before. Maybe some of the teams looked at him last year. A team like the Rams maybe bring him in to be like, hey, talk to me a little bit about this offense. What do we have going on? That is not something that I think I'm too surprised about. You don't want Colt McCoy taking these quarterback sneaks up the middle or having, you know, running a QB power. 
What I think, at least as far as the roster is built out, what is a little bit more of intrigue is not necessarily Chris Strebler, but the fact of where they may use him. He was taking snaps in camp as a personal punt protector, and the Cardinals seemed to use him in that hill roll earlier in the season until they just seemed to went away from it. I don't know if it was Cliff wanting to be able to do it by himself. I don't know. Some have wondered if Steve Kime potentially may have, you know, put the onus on Kingsbury to say, hey, like, no more of this, you know, trick quarterback stuff. Kyler's not happy with it, with him being taken off the field. Uh, Go and run what your offense is out there. You don't need to have some of this gimmicks. And that's kind of the area I think of uh, what I've critiqued a little bit about the typical Cardinals media is if you say you got to take Strevler off on these fourth downs, you can't just run a gimmicky type of offense. And then, you see, late in the season, the Cardinals can't seem to pick up a third and two or a fourth and one to save their lives. Suddenly, people say you should be using Straveler. You can't have it both ways. And by keeping Straveler on the roster, my hope is that the Cardinals are showing the ability to develop a quarterback for the long term who's got some athletic talent and an arm and be able to also be able to rectify that fact of we can have a guy that can take a hit that our quarterback doesn't need to that we can put in the game and use that athleticism. Now, the other surprise that you can look at on the offensive side, the Cardinals kept four running backs. Right now, most people seem to have Jonathan Ward as the third string ahead of Eno Benjamin. Um, From what we know, Eno has essentially got that third string role. He's probably going to be their kick returner for this year. And as a result, it's something where when you talk about seventh-round picks being able to have a major impact on the Cardinals roster, I would argue that Eno Benjamin is going to have more of an impact in the 2022 season than he would the 2021 season. That should be easy to see. Eno is a guy who is under contract while Chase Edmonds and James Conner are in the last year of their deals. If Eno is able to at least impress the the staff enough this year, they could potentially go into next year with him and maybe one other veteran back on the roster as their lead back. That would be something that would be interesting to see because the Cardinals would have then essentially gotten a seventh-round steal for a guy who was essentially a local star out of Arizona State. Let's wrap up with the offense. The Cardinals have three tight ends, Max Williams, Daryl Daniels, who showed a little bit of hands to catch on some of the shorter plays and the one long touchdown, the Miami game. And then Demetrius Harris is a little bit smaller, but has a plethora of games under his belt from his time with the Kansas City Chiefs. He just doesn't seem to have the best hands, but he at least for the most part fits that more move, maybe not less pass blocking tight end, but much more of that tight end that you want to see. Um, Being able to get open down the field has some decent size, just not a lot of weight. The last aspect, at least, of the Cardinals that a lot of people were a bit shocked by, and maybe I wasn't as much as others due to, you know, some of the uh, scouting background I had, but the Cardinals cut Keyshawn Johnson, who had reportedly not been having a great camp, and this is something I'd kind of seen too, it just didn't look the same. They didn't cut Andy Isabella, who is liked by the staff. Perhaps this is Steve Keim, you know, wanting to keep it. He was missing most of camp, and for him to just suddenly be on the roster and everyone during the closed practice, mind you, hear that he had a good week of camp, that's a little bit suspect there. But knowing the fact that the Cardinals, you just can't walk out and find people who have 4-3 speed who are able to have spent this many years in the roster – and the offense, you saw how JoJo Ward, for the most part, it was only in that slot role when we watched him during the season, and he just wasn't able to seemingly catch the ball. If Isabella is able to at least work a little bit more on those hands, the fact that he can play outside and give a little bit of an extra dimension of speed to the offense, especially if Rondell Moore, who's missed time uh, already this offseason, not to mention with the rest of his play through college, uh, that may be something that 
the Cardinals see as worthwhile, especially more worthwhile than the likes of Keyshawn Johnson, who had showcased some drops, a little bit of lack of separation compared to the guy who did make the roster, and Antoine Wesley. Now, Antoine Wesley, this is a guy who I've talked about for since he went into the league in 2019. He played with Cliff Kingsbury, I believe, in his either junior or senior year, and Cliff's last year at Texas Tech. This is a guy who knew Cliff's system inside and out, played on the outside in that same DeAndre Hopkins role, and had, I believe it was, at least 1,200 to 1,400 yards in that system. I think, if I remember correctly, it was closer to 1,100 uh, overall. When you factor in some of the penalty yards he was able to draw, um, you were able to see a guy who was essentially able to be a starting X for the Kingsbury and Cardinals. He goes to the Baltimore Ravens, a team that is probably the worst possible fit for him. If you talk about the quarterback that's there involved, the type of offense that they run, they've gotten small, short guys like Marquise Brown. They've gotten some other slot guys. Uh, I want to say Willie Sneed. As far as for large outside threats, they don't have them outside. They really are just more of an inside-out team that focuses on the power running game and being able to take some of those different deep shots off of sometimes these three tight end sets. And when you're talking about getting a large X receiver on the outside who can jump up and make those contested catches, you can kind of see how it went with Joe Flacco. That seemed like it worked. When the Ravens moved from Flacco to the likes of Lamar Jackson, suddenly we got to see a little bit less usage as far as <laughs> we got to see a little bit more less usage for, I believe it was Michael Crabtree and a bit more for the speedier John Brown. And that's what's interesting, I think, to me about this play player in Antoine Wesley is he got hurt, at least I believe his first season, comes into the Cardinals now in this 2021 after spending time on the practice squad, and he just starts catching everything in camp. And some of it is you can kind of see a little bit of this innateness to his route running and understanding of the offense. He knows exactly where the, the pull-up spot is going to be. He knows the basic route tree that's going to be there and what's required. When the ball is going to be thrown, if it's going to be on time, he at least seems to be understanding enough of expecting it. And with his large frame he's able to box out some of these opposing cornerbacks and has been able to make some of these crazy catches. Now, you can't build your whole career off of these crazy 50-50 balls and one-handed catches. We've seen some players who've been able to do that, the most notable, I think, in Michael Floyd, who were able to play a part of that, but ultimately were somewhat then a, you know, three catches for 50 yards type of player with one of those long 30-yard bombs being it. You can't make a living in the NFL as an X off of just being a 50-50 guy. You can get by for for a season as a team if you want, but really what it comes down to is being able to have a guy like Wesley on the roster who, if A.J. Green goes down or, God forbid, DeAndre Hopkins is up being hurt, having a guy who can be able to grab the, grab the ball, be able to kind of maybe push a guy around a little bit, has that size in that frame for the quarterback and throw it up to them, that's an asset to the Cardinals. And the fact that Wesley went, I believe, as a seventh-round pick late in the draft, if not an undrafted free agent, due to the lack of speed that he had. Well, in this outside scheme of Cliff Kingsbury, you can have speed on the other side, but you don't need to have a lot of speed in order to basically get some of that separation so long as the Cardinals are able to have just enough of the separation to get open downfield. You can look at Christian Kirk. He's a 4-4 guy. He doesn't even run close to a 4-2 and he's a guy who was able to be used as essentially the deep threat for the Cardinals. DeAndre Hopkins, guy notably, ran a 4-5, about almost a whole second slower than Larry Fitzgerald, who many called slow just from the fact that they didn't think that he was a fast receiver for the most part. And he ends up outrunning guys at the next level because that's the sort of mentality and the sort of athleticism he truly had. When it comes to Wesley, I don't think he's a guy that you're going to be talking about as an impact maker on the Cardinals, but he's a guy that you want to have on your team 
due to that experience and the knowledge that he has of Kingsbury, but also just because you want to have that depth. The Cardinals do have depth now at their wide receiver position. If any of their wide receivers gets hurt, they've got a guy they can go to at least, whether it's Isabella for some of the speed or even working out of the slot like how Christian Kirk should be this year, or Wesley being able to be kind of the de facto Hopkins green role on the outside, and I'll saying more of that role versus the type of player. You want to have that sort of depth. And that's why the, keeping him made a lot of sense to me earlier in the process. Ultimately, it's interesting that many picked Keyshawn Johnson to make the roster over time, or even Greg Dortch due to special teams. It does seem like the Cardinals this season, for whatever reason it was, decided to keep some of the guys in their roster to fill specific roles versus just trying to find maybe the best overall player in one or two cases, such as maybe Keyshawn, slightly better player than some of them. Maybe you could argue Dorch is a little bit better a player than Isabella, but I think a lot of it was that there was a marriage of role and player just beating out the other guy in camp. That was a part of this with the offense. And we've seen that in the case of how the Cardinals this year are going to be running very few of these three tight end sets. They'll be running a lot, I think, with two running backs, with four wide receivers, and being able to stock those positions, I think, is super important. Uh, let's go ahead and I can shift to the defensive side talking about this as well as maybe some of the expectations for the Cardinals post Malcolm Butler as I wrap up. There's not that many surprises. Michael Dogby makes the roster. He's a guy who's spent time on and off on the practice squad, on the team. He's kind of your, in case of emergency, break glass, versatile defensive lineman who can line up at the nose tackle. He can line up, you know, at the three technique or one technique. There's all these techniques you have on the defensive line. He's one of those guys at the Cardinals. He's not been good enough to essentially start or even maybe make the rotation, but he's the guy that's been good enough that if a guy gets hurt, and we've had plenty of those as Arizona Cardinals fans have seen, he can come in. Uh, right now, the defensive player that's still on the pup list, not able to come out, I believe due to COVID, has been Justin Pugh on the offensive side. And on the defensive side, you are seeing, still making the roster, Robert Alford. This is probably one of the biggest gambles that Steve Keim has made because if it turns out that it's going to be Byron Murphy and then the likes of Marco Wilson starting, I think that's fine. I think that you're able to get away with that as a Cardinals player. The issue then comes down to if you're having to look at Luke Barku or Tay Gowan, your sixth round pick of having to then take over as the number three corner, suddenly you're going to be looking at a team like the Rams where they've got two great wide receivers and then they'll probably have a small fast guy like a 2-2 Atwell. If you're going to be able to have success in the league and teams are going to be constantly pushing you into these types of situations, you're going to have to either adapt from a corner perspective, have some of your safeties play some dual roles, or you're going to be having to rely on Isaiah Simmons to be able to fill some of that role with his flexibility. As we've seen, Simmons at least has had that flexibility to play with some of the even faster wide receivers in the game. But just the confusing and the lack of ability, at least right now, you can at least see he's still learning some of the nuances of the NFL. He did not play at all last season to kind of take some of those lumps and move on. The Cardinals were trying to win games. They're now also trying to win games, and he's having to similarly, similarly take those lumps. So if the Cardinals are going to be then trusting essentially that cornerback three spot to a sixth-round pick or trying to finagle a safety or a linebacker into some of these spots, then you're kind of talking about how the team is essentially going to probably get burned a couple of times by defenses taking advantage of some of that confusion. The Cardinals being a confusing team is one of their best bets, but as we've seen in the years past, there are times when you see some guys who are able to step up and make plays. Simmons himself being one of those guys. When the Cardinals lost Hicks and I lost, I believe, uh, whether it was, I don't know if it was Josh Bynes. I think he, no, Bynes, uh, Josh Bynes is gone by that point. 
they lost another inside linebacker, so it was Tanner Vallejo and Isaiah Simmons were the guys mugging the gaps, and both of them stepped up and were able to make plays. Their assignments were also pretty simple. The Cardinals were calling a blitz package with both of them standing in the A-gap. They either dropped back like Simmons did for his pick or rushed the passer like Tanner Vallejo did and were able to come up with a sack in a clutch situation in that game. When you're talking about long-term potential of having to have a guy out there for the long term, that's what concerns me quite a bit. And that's why I think the Cardinals will go out and sign at least one veteran corner to bring in to pair behind Robert Alford uh, with Darquez Denard hitting the IR. This is similar, I think, to the Prince of Mucamara situation where they're able to kind of stash a guy on the IR for the year, bring him back if they like him in the next year. His contract, of course, is guaranteed. And that regard, it kind of does keep them away from other teams being able to kind of pluck them out of the free agency um, aspect for the most part without you know being able to properly invest if you're playing a team like the Rams and they take Darquez Denard off of say the practice squad it's going to be an issue uh, let's go ahead now with talking about the defensive backs and just move to the last notable spot with the Cardinals which is Victor Dimukeji being the other outside linebacker on the other side behind Dennis Gardeck who is now practicing again behind Chandler Jones who's in a contract year and paired alongside J.J. Watt you're talking about a big year for two players in particular. Those players, in my opinion, are Devon Kennard and Zach Allen. Devon Kennard was signed to essentially be this Marcus Golden role who could cover guys down the field, be able to be an answer to not just pass rush problems, but also be an answer to tight end problems. The Cardinals have brought in Marcus Golden. They've got Devon Kennard there. With the likes of J.J. Watt flexing into the inside, there is not a lot of depth for the Arizona Cardinals at that outside linebacker position if Chandler Jones is to go down. To be able to get after the passer, at least, you're hoping that Dennis Gardeck, who's coming off a torn ACL, can be there. But a lot's just going to come down to being able to see if Devon Kennard can step up, be able to stay healthy, and be that impact player that the Cardinals thought that he was when they signed him to a three-year deal last year. Because Dimakeji, he's not the most athletic guy, but he's got a good motor and showed at least the ability to stick around in the preseason. Not every player did for the Cardinals. They let go of James Wiggins, who was kind of a mini Buddha when he was at Cincinnati, but had an absolutely terrible knee injury that happened. And it seemed like he still hasn't quite gotten all of the confidence back. He seems likely for the practice squad, whereas Michael Minette is a, a starting center who, for all regards and purposes, this has kind of been what I call a kind pick. He's a guy who's probably undersized at center, gets a lot of starts under his belt, so then you're kind of seeing him as a player who, you know, maybe has experience more than a raw guy who's got more athleticism and is just not quite that athletic. They're not athletic to the point where, in some cases, when you bring them into camp, they just get bossed around. And the Cardinals have had multiple centers they brought in like this. You talk about Mason Cole, about Evan Bame. You can talk even about, like, the likes of... Um, Oh, gosh, I want to say Cole Toner, essentially being one of these players as well. The Cardinals bring them in as a center, and then within a year or sometimes even within, you know, uh, in this case, a camp, they just cut them and let them loose. And I think this is where Steve Keim, there's a little bit of that Keim self that shows out by seeing some of these guys as similar to himself. When he came out, he was an undersized day three offensive lineman. And so for him to see himself in some of these players, I mean, you can even look at, like, Michael Manette even looks like him for the most part. If you look at a picture of him, at least with the bald head, a nice, long, thick beard. These are the areas where I think the Cardinals need to improve. The best picks that the Cardinals really have made when you're talking about these day three or day seven picks have really been finding these big players who fall to these late rounds for one reason or another and being able to take them before they go undrafted. Tony Jefferson being one of the players who should have gone to the Cardinals but instead was undrafted due to the fact that they apparently really wanted a tight end that barely lasted a season for them. 
Uh, you can talk at least about how the Cardinals took Eno Benjamin, which is as far as taking these late-round running backs who fall a couple of rounds in the draft. That's a smart decision. And really, the picks of some of them have made, like even Caleb Wilson, the one pick that they made at least to pair up with Josh Rosen, his target from UCLA back in the 2000, and I believe it was 2018 draft. No, maybe it's 2019. Yeah, I believe it was 2019 with Cliff Kingsbury. Cardinals were picking first, so they also had the last pick. He just was not that athletic of a tight end as far as being able to have turn of direction. He was fast because of the timing on the 40, but most people had him as an undrafted free agent just because of that lack of flexibility and lack of blocking he had at the tight end position. And I think that the Cardinals and Kime hopefully have learned a little bit from this, but it would not shock me at least to see them going right back to those roots. And I think that's something you just have to eventually accept about there's some degrees of people that can change, some degrees of players that can change, some that there can't be. Ben... Ben Roethlisberger's always going to be standing in the pocket, taking a big hit of some sort, trying to extend a play and shrugging guys off. A player like Russell Wilson's always going to be kind of hanging around and taking a bunch of extra sacks due to the fact that he's trying to make a big play, get open down the field, and as a result ends up, you know, sometimes trusting his legs a little bit too much to bail him out of trouble. There's going to be players like Patrick Mahomes who are going to be similarly, you know, sometimes going off their first read, running around, and then somehow making an incredible throw across their body for a big completion just because that's something that they are special at for the most part and the teams are not able to adjust to. When it comes to players like Kyler Murray who are essentially kind of holding onto the ball and sometimes taking a two-yard rushing loss versus being able to get that corner and pick up some yardage, I think it's the same as far as with Cliff and with Kime in that there are some things you just have to give up and some things you just have to accept about them that isn't going to change. Cliff is never going to want to bring on an OC, just like I think how Steve Kime is always going to be drafting these kind of players for the, uh, the Cardinals on day three, drafting these undersized linemen. And that'll lead to the last kind of point, I think, at least for tonight, which is what to expect from the Cardinals now without Malcolm Butler. Well, the biggest thing, I think, at least, is when you're talking about the Cardinals' schedule, they need to be able to show out and start 3-1, and one, in my opinion, to be able to make that big playoff push. At worst, you could probably say you can go 2-2, two and two, and then as long as you can either clean up some of these division games, maybe hoping you can leapfrog a team like Seattle ends up taking a step back, or hope that the Niners end up with issues trying to f- resolve Jimmy Garoppolo and Trey Lance. But the four games that they have against the Titans, the Vikings, the Jags, and the Rams have the same level of importance they did previously. Now, the biggest difference, though, is instead of being able to look at Malcolm Butler and Byron Murphy against A.G.A. Brown and Julio Jones or against Justin Jefferson and Adam Thielen, you're now talking about a rookie being your starter or a 32-year-old who has not played a football game in two years. This is kind of where the Cardinals are going to have to either figure something out to bring in a guy or, in my opinion, they're going to be burned on these sides defensively. Now, maybe things are wrong. Maybe their pass rush up front with Watt, Jones, and a few others ends up compensating for some of that where the Cardinals were able to rush, you know, four, drop seven, have a couple of extra safeties, kind of keeping those corners clean on the back end. Perhaps that's the case, and I'm totally wrong. But it would not shock me at all if teams start to take advantage of a slower Alford, perhaps, or a new corner in Wilson to be able to burn them and be able to put up at least some points. The Cardinals, at least at one point, were having to average, it's, I believe it was, about 14 points a game, and they jumped up to about 24 or so points a game. To get into that upper echelon, you're looking at about 30 points a game. 
to get to the upper echelon defenses, you're having to kind of hold teams to about two touchdowns a game. If you want to be one of these elite of elite defenses, you're talking about 10 points or so a game, 10 to 13 points a game. So if the Cardinals defense, if they lose Malcolm Butler, if they're giving up, let's say they give up an extra field goal or so per game, and the Cardinals last year, you know, they were about a gave up, I believe it was, they gave up about 20, yeah, they gave up about 21 to 23 points a game. They scored an average about, you know, 24 points a game. So they were in a ton of close games last year. Well, if the Cardinals end up seeing a similarity where they boost some up in the offensive side, let's say they get one more touchdown a game, they get up to 30 points. If their defense takes a step back and suddenly gives up at least one more touchdown a game in return, let's say that you're talking about a team that goes from, hey, all of a sudden you have to put up 30 points a game because your defense is giving up 24 to 27. <laughs> you have to then have your offense that puts an extra weight on. Or you go out in the fourth quarter, you run a touchdown, go up at least by seven points, and then suddenly the opposing team marches down the field, rushes in for a touchdown, and then Kyler Murray has to come back on the field um, either tied or down a score to be able to kind of deliver the game in hand. And that's where the Cardinals have really struggled has been in those situational football places. The places they've done the best have been where they can have a lead and let their defense essentially blitz the heck out of the opposing passer and be able to walk away with a win. That's what we saw was their identity in 2020. And that's what's probably going to be their identity in this year. So here's what I think the expectation is for the Cardinals. If they're not able to stop the Titans as much in week one, or if it becomes more of a shootout, the, the Titans on the other side are going to be also starting a rookie corner. They're going to have uh, at least for sure a healthy Hopkins, likely A.J. Green, Rondell Moore, and Christian Kirk. I guess a defense that struggled quite a bit last year in the Titans and still isn't the best. If the Cardinals can rip up the Titans and avoid being completely devastated on the other side, then that's probably one of the biggest wins that they will have of all of the entire season due to the fact that you're starting in week one on the road against a uh, perennial playoff opponent in the Titans. If they lose that game and the A.J. Brown, Julio Jones run wild, the Cardinals are able to put up points, but perhaps not at the rate that they've wanted to, you suddenly go into week two against the Minnesota Vikings, against the likes of Dalvin Cook, the likes of Adam Thielen, and against the likes of, um, I should say, Justin Jefferson, basically last year's Rookie of the Year. And you're having to essentially recognize that Kirk Cousins is on the other end. The Vikings defense is still not looking great. That's a game that when you're playing at home, you should be able to win. So you're talking about, but now that becomes a must win. If Justin Jefferson suddenly tears you up for 200 yards and you're not able to get to the likes of a passer in Kirk Cousins... Despite the fact you're playing at home, that's that's going to be an issue for the Cardinals because the Vikings are another team you'll have to beat to keep out of the playoffs. I think that no matter what you're talking about, the Cardinals, that week two is a must-win game as far as when it comes to them making the, a big playoff push. Now, obviously, things may change as the season goes on. Perhaps you lose a game that suddenly doesn't matter as much down the stretch. But in that regard, because of the way that they go with the Titans, I do think that no matter what happens, whether you beat the Titans or lose, you will have to win that Week 2 game. And that's where a lot of people are concerned about that wide receiver core now. Week 3 against the Jags, this is kind of your typical Cardinals trap game. A young rookie quarterback at 10 in a 10 a.m. game making their first start. Or having a quarterback who has a player like Brian Hartland coming out of nowhere who's able to just put up points on the board and the Cardinals at least struggle. Um, we saw this last year against Tua Tagovailoa in his, uh, I believe, second start, which he didn't have to do very much in his first week. So the first time Tua really had to take on very little film, not a lot of prep. 
uh, being able to be done for him. He just went and roasted the Cardinals. It's almost like a lot of people have joked the Cardinals do better against entrenched starters in the NFC West, such as Russell Wilson, than they do against the likes of these rookie or backup quarterbacks making a start. The Jags game is against the team that needs to rebuild some on defense that is really just not quite on par with the Cardinals. This is a game where you call it a trap game. That's probably the next area you call would have to be a must win because after that you've got this gauntlet facing you down of the next three games. You have the Rams in a what's going to be nationally televised game. You have the Niners, and then you've got the Browns, who many are picking for the AFC title game, despite the fact that the Chiefs and Bills are also there. The Rams, the Niners, and the Browns. If you go into the stretch, at least, and you've lost two of your opening games, you lose one to the Titans or Vikings or Jags, you're probably fine. You lose two of those games. Suddenly, you're talking about the Cardinals are now down one and two. To be able to be relevant in that playoff push, they're going to have to be able to essentially win two out of those next games to get to three and two, and then see if you can steal. If you can get to four and two, then you're a little bit more comfortable because the schedule gets weak uh, at some points, at least in the middle, but then gets pretty brutal again down at the end, assuming that you're going to be playing with guys like the Colts, the, the Cowboys, and being able to go back to some of those divisional games. This is a spot where what you don't want to see with the Arizona Cardinals, and this is a scenario you'll paint. Well, a lot of Cardinals fans said they feel a sense of doom because they feel they're going to lose a game to the Titans. They'll probably win a game or two against the Vikings or the Jag or the Jaguars. But even after that 2-1 start, these next three games, for the most part, if you end up being in a spot where you can only go 1-2, and two, you're really going to wish that you had gone 3-0 and oh to start the season. You're really going to wish that you had a cornerback to be able to play against those guys with the Titans who is experienced and ready to go. Because if the Cardinals are not able to beat the Rams again like they haven't since 2017, like at some point they're going to, I think, beat the Rams. They haven't for, for, it seems like, forever. At some point they will. But if it's not this time, then you've got two games essentially that will determine your season against the Niners and the Browns. Because if you start off with a loss, with two wins, you lose to the Rams, and then you lose to the Niners, suddenly you're looking at a, a two and three season, going and playing the Cleveland Browns. This, I believe, will be an away game this last year. If you lose that game and fall to two and four, suddenly everyone and their mother will be selling Cliff Kingsbury and the Cardinals. They'll be selling on your team. They'll be wondering if Kyler Murray is truly going to be the guy. Does Kyler need to have a coach? Are we making excuses for this player? It'll be very similar in a lot of regards to Andrew Luck when he was with the Carolina Panthers or Cam Newton. I should say uh, Andrew Luck with the Colts or Cam Newton with the Panthers about how much more help do you need? You've got A.J. Green. You've got Rondell Moore. You should have enough pieces on defense. At that point, I could see it being the spot where Cliff Kingsbury's odds would suddenly shift to being the first coach potentially fired. And that's not something any Cardinals fan wants. What I think deeper down every Cardinals fan wants is to be able to be right, to be able to say, hey, we were right about Cliff. The Cardinals are right to stick by Steve Kime rather than just to jettison him too soon because he's at least shown that he can find and acquire talent. We want the Cardinals to be able to succeed with Kyler Murray. And if that's not the case and they're not able to succeed, then a lot of fans are going to tune out very quickly. This is a fan base that has ex expectations in year three of the playoffs. As a fan base that just saw the Suns go on a miraculous turnaround run and go into a finals appearance in which they were up 2-0 before it all fell apart. Fans want to see the Cardinals be able to have success. And a way to do that, in my opinion, is you have to be able to get out of these first six games being able to have a winning record. If it's 4-2, and two, you're able to say, hey, we've made the leap, we've made the jump, let's not get too full of ourselves. But you could at least say that the Cardinals at 4-2 and two, coming out of that brutal six-game stretch should be in position to be able to contend for a playoff spot. If they're at 3-3, three and three, then you're, you're still in it, but you're still kind of slightly. You're then probably talking a bit about 
how Cliff Kingsbury seems to never get more than eight wins, about how this 500 record seems like it's predictable, like it may happen. Again, you're good enough to beat a bad team like the Vikings or Jags. You're good enough to be able to, you know, take advantage and beat a team in the division every once in a while. Cardinals last year, I know, went two and four in division, beating the Niners and the Seahawks in last minute plays. Maybe you're a team that just goes and beats up on the Browns for the most part. Maybe Baker Mayfield has a bad day. Of course, there's some injuries. The Browns have been a pretty interesting juggernaut as far as being a run-first team that really has a great offensive line and defensive line. It's going to be tough, I think, for that team. If you want to be the Cardinals, you want to get to 3-3 three and three at least and have a shot because then you can at least just try to win a game or two, see if you can sneak in. That may be good enough for a contract extension for Kyman Cliff, be able to get an extra year or two under their belts, and then be able to prove it when Kyler Murray gets paid that they're able to draft and develop talent after that. If you start off 2-4, and four, or God forbid, let's say the Cardinals, they can only beat the Vikings, they lose a trap game to the Jags, and then they drop three in a row. That Browns game may end up being like the death sentence for Cliff, and then people will start talking about, you know, what will be the case for the Arizona Cardinals of the future, and a lot of fingers will be pointing at Steve Keim as being a guy who's held the Cardinals back, and people questioning whether he will be making the choice again. Lots to talk about, at least obviously. Week one is coming up in a few weeks. Um, we'll be back at least there. I'll be looking at probably having, hopefully, at least some more guests on throughout the week with the ROTV pod, as well as being able to keep up with two shows a week, one being able to recap some of the game, and then another being able to just kind of break down what's went wrong, what went right, what's to be looking forward for the cards. Thanks again for tuning in. This has been the Revenge of the Birds podcast. Yeah.